Our scripture reading is from Genesis 1, 26 through 27, and Genesis 2, 15. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then the Lord took, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and kept it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ben. Well, good morning, and let me just add to Ben's welcome. We're so glad that you're here this morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus of Christ Community, and we're thrilled that you uh, have chosen to be with us this morning, especially if you are newer and you're in that process of exploring uh, a new church or maybe coming back to church uh, for the first time in a really long time. We're really glad that you're here and uh, hopefully you found Christ Community already in your short time uh, here this morning to be a place that's warm and welcoming. You sensed our love for Christ here in this place, and we're really glad that you're here. Well, we're in the midst of a series uh, called A Story Worth Living, and we're looking at kind of the stories, the narratives that our culture tells, and then kind of comparing those with the, the foundational biblical story that we have in Genesis chapters 1 and 3. We know that a series like this uh, brings up all kinds of questions, more than we have time to deal with in, in any one message. And so uh, I think I have a slide here with a phone number. If you send a text to that number, um, then on Monday afternoon, uh, we will try to answer uh, questions via Facebook Live. So if you are listening to the sermon, you think of a question, uh, pull out your phone, text it, jot it down, text it later, or even later on as you're uh, thinking about it this afternoon while you're mowing the lawn or something and a question comes to mind, text those in. And then uh, on Tuesday, actually, because of the holiday tomorrow, uh, we will uh, jump in and try to answer some of those on Facebook Live. Well, before we now look at the passage of Scripture um, and the, the, the narrative that we're going to be looking at this morning, I'd love to begin by praying and asking God to, to help us to understand His Word and to apply it in our lives. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, you are so gracious to give us the Scriptures, to preserve them uh, for us, and uh, we're so grateful that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you continue to speak to us through them, and we pray that you would do that now and that um, your spirit also would give us the ability to obey them and to respond to you um, just as the author of these texts would have us. And uh, that author is ultimately you. So would you do that work within us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was in uh, seminary in the north suburbs of Chicago, uh, I worked as a window washer. So in case any of you ever wondered, I have actually had a real job at some point in my life. Um, yes, I did. And uh, now I wasn't one of those window washers who hung off of a, of a high-rise building on one of those flimsy platforms. No, my feet remained firmly uh, planted on the ground at all times. Uh, I washed windows for sort of you know, these little strip malls and car dealerships and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, it, you know, it paid pretty well for the amount of time that you put in. And, uh, as I got better at it, I was able to do my route more quickly. And so uh, it, was a good, it was a good job to do in the midst of going to school. And actually, the, the physical labor of it was a really welcome change from hours in the classroom and the library that uh, I spent most of my time doing at that stage of life. And it was especially wonderful in the beautiful springs and falls in Chicago, um, but I dreaded it during the Chicago winters. 
Because working outside with water, which window washing requires, in sub-zero wind chills in Chicago is just absolutely awful. Um, you know, because you'd have to be dipping your hands, you have these huge, thick gloves, and the, the biggest problem, though, was it's so cold that the water would instantly freeze on the glass, and so we'd have to add the special methanol-alcohol mixture to keep the, the water from freezing on the glass. Well, it was just was, it was not great. But the day the window washing that stands out most in my memory wasn't one of those brutally cold Chicago winter days. In fact, it wasn't even on my normal route. Someone else uh, in the company was on vacation, so I agreed to do his route for a little extra income that week. And his route was in kind of the Evanston area near the, the Northwestern University campus, a beautiful part of town. And I was washing the windows of a Pete's Coffee. I remember it so clearly. And just as I was finishing the, the outside upper windows, a man and his probably, I don't know, maybe 11-year-old son were walking by. And without any attempt to uh, make sure I didn't hear what he about, was about to say, he pointed to me and said to his son, you see, son, that's what a life of playing video games all the time will, will get you. <laughs> I mean, he had made no, I mean, like, he didn't care that I heard. It wasn't whispered. It was in full hearing of me. And I was furious. He didn't know me. Uh, and, and this is all the things that I thought in this moment. Not, not that these are the right things to think, but this is all the things that I said. He doesn't know me. This is just a job. Does he know? I, I graduated near the top of my class studying biblical languages and theology in undergrad. I'm a graduate student at one of the top evangelical seminaries in the world. I was just working this job along with working as a resident so I could, could cover my costs during school. I certainly had not wasted my life playing video games. And in fact, it had been a point of pride for me that when I bought my own laptop my freshman year of college that I didn't install a single video game because this was for schoolwork. And I say, came this close to following him into the restaurant that he and his son were walking into next door and just telling him all of that. Uh, thankfully, I didn't. But looking back now on that moment, I can see that, that my reaction to his, this comment, admittedly, is probably an inappropriate comment to make, but that my reaction revealed that I had both too high a view of work and too low a view of work all at the same time. More on that in just a moment. Because, again, this morning we're looking at these stories that we tell about culture, tell about our lives. And one of the stories that we tell ourselves is a story about work. And we're in this series called A Story Worth Living, and we're doing this because we want to look at the stories that we tell and ask, are the stories that we tell as a culture stories worth living? What are the assumptions that we all have about how life works that, that, that we rarely think about, though, because they're just the commonly accepted stories and we're talking about those stories. We've looked at this idea of you only live once or be true to yourself. Stories that whether or not we're Christians have a deep influence on us. And we're taking those stories and comparing them with the foundational biblical story recorded for us in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And we're asking the question, where does the Genesis story both affirm 
our cultural stories, where does the, our culture get the part of the story right, as well as where does the Genesis narrative push back and challenge the narratives of our culture? And why? Because we want our stories to be shaped by a story that's worth living. And so on this Labor Day weekend, we want to look at the story that we so often tell ourselves about work. And I think the story that we so often tell ourselves about work in our cultural context is captured really well by this phrase of work is just a job. Work is just a job. And sometimes it really feels like that, doesn't it? Work is just a job, just the, a sort of necessary evil that lets us put food on the table, roof over our heads, and, and maybe, maybe take some vacation here or then, and then hopefully also save up a little bit for retirement. But what we do for work is just, it's just a means to an end. What it gets us. It's just a job. An article uh, in the New York Times a couple years ago titled Why You Hate Work captures this well. The author writes, the way we are working isn't working. Even if you're lucky enough to have a job, again, which isn't always a given in our time, you're probably not very excited to get to the office in the morning. You don't feel appreciated while you're there. You find it difficult to get your most important work accomplished amid distractions. And you don't believe that what you're doing makes much of a difference anyway. And by the time you get home, you're pretty much running on empty yet still answering emails until you fall asleep. And when that's our reality, and as I've talked to many of you, I know that feels like your reality so often. And I feel that myself in my work at times. Work becomes just a job. It's about making it to the weekend, making it to the next vacation. So I spent a few hours working on our next family vacation, just making it to that next trip, making it to retirement. And the Bible actually accounts for this frustration that we feel in work. In Genesis chapter 3, we find that one of the most devastating results of Adam and Eve, the original humans, one of their, the most devastating results of their rebellion against God in the garden is that their work becomes toilsome. It becomes hard, sweat-inducing. It's marred by thorns. I just want you to hear some of these verses from Genesis chapter 3. This is beginning in verse 17. This is God speaking to Adam about work after the rebellion against God. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and had eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Work becomes hard. Toil, thorns, sweat. From that moment on, every job has thorns. Right? I mean, even Eric Hosmer, I'm sure he doesn't love his job every day, especially on nights like last night. Right? Okay, well, actually, maybe Salvi does enjoy his job every day. Um, but I'm sure even Salvi has, has his days, right? And when work is just a job, 
becomes primarily just about us. It's just a means of providing for our needs, our food, our shelter. It's about taking care of our family, which isn't wrong. Uh, Far from it, in fact. The Bible affirms over and over again that we should work hard to provide for ourselves, for our families, that we shouldn't be dependent on others. The Apostle Paul, one of the early followers of Jesus, he was a church planner. He writes in one of his letters to a church in the Greek city of Thessalonica, encouraging them this way. He says, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs. He says, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and not be dependent and to be dependent on no one. So the Bible affirms that yes, work has thorns. It affirms that, yes, there's a goodness to working hard to provide for your family, to provide for your needs. The trouble is, is that when we view work as just a job, when we come to have that as our dominant mentality about work, it can end up making work only about us, making only, making it only about me and my needs. For example, uh, Dorothy Sayers, who was a contemporary uh, of C.S. Lewis, a good friend, um, a brilliant writer and scholar in her own right, she has a fantastic essay called Why Work? And in it, she points out that many physicians that she talked to were primarily in the work for the paycheck. The patient was just something that happened along the way. There's certainly a way to be a doctor that way, and there's a way to do any job that way. That that the work is primarily motivated by the paycheck and whatever else just happens along the way. I mean, getting paid is good, but it's not enough. When we work only for a paycheck, it's very easy to just do enough to get by in our work. It's also easy in those moments, if we're just working for a paycheck, to blur, to cut ethical corners, even when staying within legal boundaries. I mean, many people have pointed out that that the 2008 financial crisis was caused by decisions and actions that were, for the most part, not illegal under the law at the time but they were deeply unethical. But if work is just a job, doing the hard work of trying to figure out what's ethical, even if it might be legal, just isn't that, it's not worth it. But what we discover when we look more closely at Genesis chapters one through three is that work is much more than just a job. Work is so much more than just a job. It's so much more than, than about just us, though it's, though it's not less than that. What we discover is that work is love in action. You see, to understand the biblical story about work, you have to go back further than Genesis chapter 3, which I think is where we often think about the story of work in the Bible beginning. We think about Genesis chapter 3, but you have to go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Because the story of work doesn't just begin with Adam and Eve rebelling against God. Work is not somehow a punishment for sin. Though I think that's often how we think about it. You see, work existed before Adam and Eve rebelled. Now, we've already seen that sin has had a profound effect on work. 
But work is not the result of sin. And there are two key passages that we need to look at carefully to understand the story of work in the Bible. The first one is Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. It's actually the same text we looked at last week when we talked about the goodness of being made in the image of God. Let me just read these verses for you again. Ben read them for us, but let's, let's listen again carefully. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now listen carefully in verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So first of all, as we saw last week, human beings are made, created uniquely in the image of God. Created with the capacity and the commission to connect with God and with one another and to reflect God and and what he is like in the world. This idea of connection and reflection. God is a worker and we're to reflect his working nature. The whole process of creation is described at the beginning of Genesis chapter 2 as work. God is a worker. You and I are made in the image of a God who is a worker. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we're given our job description. And there there are five parts. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. And that first element is really key to understanding the rest. This idea of be fruitful. It's like the the engine of a train pulling the, the rest of the elements along behind it. And fruitfulness has to do, yes, with with multiplying and having children and filling the earth. But it also is a part of what it means to subdue and exercise dominion. That's the language this translation uses. And those words, subdue and dominion, can, can sound pejorative or harsh to us. But the idea is that we are to develop and wisely manage, rule, oversee the world. Part of what human beings were designed to do is to partner with God in governing his good world. To use our God-given ability and creativity to make something of the world, to pull out its latent potentiality. The theologian and writer Andy Crouch uh, when he was uh, with us a few years ago, actually on this, this platform, made the, the comment, he pointed out that, that grapes are good, but wine is very good, right? That you take something that is in creation, you make something more of it. I would add to that, you know, milk is good, butter is very good. Sand is good. Silicone microchips are very good. But what often happens when we read this text in Genesis chapter 1 is that we limit our understanding of fruitfulness only to the idea of having children and not seeing it connected to our vocational callings. This was one of the huge takeaways for me in reading uh, our senior pastor Tom's new book. He writes this, he says, we see being fruitful means more than simply having children. It also speaks to productive human work. 
One of the distorted messages often presented to people who are single or those who do not have children is that their lives are incomplete. But let's remember Jesus, who was the sinless incarnation and perfect embodiment of divinity and humanity, never had children. And Tom says, while not all of us can be procreative, each of us can be productive. Everyone can add value to others, cultivating blessing from the created order while being faithful to God's specific calling for their lives. This is why it is so important also that we understand work not primarily in terms of compensation, but in terms of contribution. Let me say that again. We have to understand our work first and foremost not in terms of compensation, but in terms of contribution. You see, all work has value, whether it is paid or not. Whether you're a student in school, a stay-at-home parent, a retiree, perhaps you're on disability, no matter what your situation is, you are able to and do contribute through your labor, through your work to God's good world, even if you never receive a dime in financial compensation. Our work is so much more than just a job, so much more than just compensation. And we can contribute from cradle to grave regardless of whether or not we are being paid. And so Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 20, or 27 and 28 is the first key passage we have to understand if we want to know how the biblical story of work is going to unfold. The second one is Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. And here the author tells us that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And here there, there are two key words in this verse, to, to work and to keep. And both are, are rich and multifaceted. Um, the word work could just as easily be translated worship. In fact, it, it is in other parts of the Bible in different contexts. You see, in the Hebrew mindset, there is a seamless unity between work and worship. Likewise, the word translated to keep could just as easily be translated to watch over or even to obey. The idea is that human beings are to worship God through their work and to obey God by keeping watch over, developing the garden to its full potential. So putting these two passages together, Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 2.15, we discover that there is so much more than to work than just a job. It is a way of love. Work is a way of loving God and a way of loving our neighbor. Work is love and action. If you only write down one thing this morning, I would just jot down that, that work is love in action. Our work in first, is first and foremost an expression of, uh, of worship, of love to God, the ultimate worker. See, when we do our work well, it's an act of worship to God. At our downtown campus, you know, we have five campuses around the city. At our downtown campus, which is in the Crossroads Art District, uh, and the church itself is actually set up as a gallery. It's open on First Fridays. You can go and see work from different artists displayed there. But one of my favorite things at the downtown campus is near where their coffee is. They have a set of photographs. 
And they're photographs from people in the congregation of their workplaces, offices, job sites, homes, just, and it's simply titled, Where We Worship, reminding each Sunday that this place isn't the only place or even the primary place that we worship, but our offices, our job sites, our homes are where we worship. Have you ever thought about your office as a place of worship? Kids, your classroom at school as a place of worship? You should. Your work can and must be worship, a way of responding in love to God who has made you and gifted you for work. So first and foremost, our work is a way of loving God. But it doesn't stop there. Our work is also perhaps the primary way that we love our neighbor. So remember back at the beginning, I said I told you, when I told you that story about window washing, I said my reaction showed that I had both too high a view of work and too low a view. Here's what I mean by I had too low a view of work. I was primarily viewing my work as a way to get money from me. If I'm honest, I didn't think a lot when I was washing windows about worshiping God, maybe occasionally. And I don't think I ever thought about washing windows as a way of loving my neighbor. Cleaning dirty windows was just something I had to do to make ends meet for a time. And I think I felt, and and I'm truly embarrassed to say this to you now, But I think I felt then, I don't know if I would have quite articulated it, but as I look back, I think I felt then that the work of window washing wasn't suitable work for a college-educated, grad school-attending, arrogant person like me. And I, I am truly embarrassed to tell you that I thought that, but I think that was part of the reason that comment got to me so much. It revealed how low a view of work I truly had. Now, not all work is equally compensated or valued or glamorized in our culture. That's true. But all work is a way of loving our neighbor and is inherently dignifying. How I had missed that to my shame. This week I read a fantastic article titled God the Great Janitor. And the author points out that that many who think about the connections between faith and work talk quite a bit about God being a worker. We've talked about that today. And we we describe in terms of God as the great physician who heals. He's the great architect who designs this beautiful world. He's the great artist who creates these beautiful spaces. But the author points out, but rarely do we ever talk about him in terms of being a great janitor. And he writes this, he says, some of my friends tell me that comparing God to a janitor feels irreverent, but why, he asks. Could it be that our view of work is shaped more by our cultural idols than by the gospel of the suffering servant? Could it be that we lack respect for the work of janitors or the ability to see their good work as an act of image bearing? Can a biblical vision of work reframe the way we view vocations that care for place? like janitors, maintenance staff, housekeepers, custodians, and others. 
And then he goes on in the article to describe all the ways in which God is the great janitor who cleans and restores and maintains and sustains the world, which is exactly what people in the vocations of maintenance and janitorial work do. What an incredible picture of God's care and restoration of his world. They love their neighbors by cleaning and restoring and repairing the places that we live and work and play. But as a window washer, I never made that connection. I never viewed my work as a way of loving my neighbor. But work is love in action. It's loving God, it's loving neighbor, and in our our increasingly globalized economy, when we do our work well, we have the ability not just to love our neighbors sort of immediately around us, but also around the world. So how do we grow in our love for God and for our neighbor through our work? Well, here are just a couple of really quick ideas to start with. First, just simply ask yourself, do I see my work as an act of love? Do I see my work as an act of love? Whatever that might be, as a student, parent, whatever the work is that you do, do I see it as an act of love? Love for God first and love for neighbor. Is my work worship or do I just treat it as a job? Second, and I'm really excited about this, um, I'd encourage you to read Tom's new book. The, it's called The Economics of Neighborly Love. And if you're intrigued by some of the themes in this message, he unpacks those much more fully. And read it with a friend. And the book actually doesn't come out until Tuesday. You can't order it on Amazon until Tuesday. But as a thank you to you for your good work and the generosity that you have displayed as a congregation faithfully for so many years, and even supporting in, in the thinking of, of these ideas, we have a copy for you today, one for each household. Um, so make sure you grab that on your way out. I'd love to have that just as a thank you to you and encourage you to read that with a friend. And then third, uh, there's two things that you can, can do. So you can ask yourself that question, read that book with a friend, and then uh, something to participate in. One is uh, the Common Good 2017 conference. It's coming up in, in 20, uh, October 13th of this, of this year. Um, It'll be a a day-long event thinking about how does the local church contribute to the common good, especially in the areas of work and vocation. And also, I'd encourage you to jump in and be a part of what we call the Razor's Leadership Pathway, which is something we do every single fall. It's a class that encompasses a lot of different things, but one of the major themes is helping us think about how do we connect our faith and our work and love our neighbors through our work. So yes, work has its thorns. And yes, work often feels like just a job. That will always be days that will feel like that. But I hope you're beginning to sense that work is also so much more. But we also have to recognize that work isn't everything. Work is more than just a job, but it is not everything. And I told you how that comment from that dad with his son while I was washing windows revealed, I had a too low a view of work. But it also revealed that I had too high a view of work. What do I mean by that? I mean that I made too much of work. The reason that that comment got me so upset so deeply was that I had made work, not necessarily the work of window washing, but I had made work, my career path, my academic achievement, my primary identity. 
And so when this person made a dismissive comment that showed he didn't think I had a career path or academic achievement, I was furious. Because in that moment, he wasn't just attacking me. He was insulting my Savior, the thing I was looking to to get meaning and significance, my work, my career. And this so can so, so easily happen to all of us that we begin to subtly view our work as our primary identity, the thing that shapes us, that we look to it to provide for all of our needs of meaning and purpose and significance in the world. And if we let work become this for us, work will destroy us. One pastor pointed out that when this happens, when you make work everything, when you make it your functional God, your Savior, that success goes to your head, but that failure goes to your heart. That when you're succeeding in your work, you tend to become arrogant. But when your work is going poorly, or you're fired, or your business fails, or your kids are struggling, that you sink into despair. Because your Savior is dying. Work is so important. Much more important than many of us realize. But it is not everything. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we're actually told three times that God stopped working. That he didn't work. We are told that after he finished his work, he rested. God is a worker, yes, but God is also a rester. And he has built into his creation rhythms of rest for his creatures. You realize some of the very first people to read the book of Genesis, to hear these words told to them, were people who had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years without rest. Jesus' final words on the cross were, it is finished it is finished you don't have to work to justify your existence or to be accepted for before God he has already finished that work for you therefore you can come to him and find rest Rest in the midst of work. Rest on your day off. Jesus' great invitation in Matthew chapter 11 is come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. So come to him this morning and find rest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have created us in your image to work, but also to rest and to celebrate and to enjoy. Father, would we find our ultimate rest in Jesus and therefore become the kind of workers who love you and love our neighbors supremely and sacrificially. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.